0: In this episode of the Constructing Differences podcast, I'm interviewing Jay Dolmage. Jay Dolmage is a professor at the University of Waterloo in Canada and writes about disability rights in his scholarship, service, and teaching. He is the founding editor of the Canadian Journal of Disability Studies and the Associate Chair of the Undergraduate Communication Outcome Initiative at Waterloo. So, Professor Dolmage, I was wondering if you could introduce yourself and share anything you'd like.
1: Sure. Yeah. I mean, lots of overlaps with a lot of my interests. Um, obviously, I'm not an architect, but I like to I, I think about space in a different way. Um, maybe in a way we kind of go, you know, you go from the direction of architecture to thinking about um you know, thinking about applying things that we ways that we think about the built environment to ways that we think about culture and, and relationship and, and um, community and those sorts of things. And I think I kind of maybe sometimes go the other way um, or, or, you know, I think about space without having much thought of having much control over it, <laughs> um, you know, because I'm, I'm talking about universities, for example, where we're dealing with with places that are really hesitant to change. And so thinking about changing physical space becomes a way to um, get people to think about the other things that can change, right? Or thinking about um, uh, space as a kind of metaphor for things like uh, how we teach, right? Or, or the culture and community that we build and what's made possible. Uh, yeah, and that's that's been through work like academic ableism where I'm looking at um, you know, the history of higher education and the future of higher education, but also through things like um, the the book Disabled Upon Arrival that's looking at spaces of immigration um, and how they structure Uh, that process, that exclusionary process, but also how they've been memorialized. So I was interested to hear about you looking at um, memorials and and kind of public spaces like that, because that becomes really interesting. Um, So I've looked at Ellis Island and Pier 21 through that kind of critical or cultural geography lens. And so I'm really interested in hearing more about how you're, you know, the work you're doing, but I guess this is you know, uh, maybe I get to ask you some questions, too. I'm
0: definitely open to that. I think the way that I was thinking about memorials, um, or I was thinking more, I think, specifically monuments and the way that they're based from an architectural perspective, the way that they're precedent in, like, Eurocentric, um, ideas of architecture and the way they present and how they represent citizenship specifically. So like looking at Washington DC and they're very concentrated in one area and the way that, you know, tourism works and also then tourism abroad and then coming to the U S I was, for example, uh, I was diagramming the Jefferson Memorial and how there's like, there's that idea of the colonnade and then the heavy use of the stair. Um, And then I was looking at the images from the Capitol Crawl and the way that bodies were climbing up the stairs and the way that we experience memorials and the way that we present through photographs and through um, citizen experience. Um, But yeah, I was just wondering what your education background is like and how you came across these topics and ideas to pursue.
1: Sure. I mean, I think that the one thing to say is that my family has, has been involved in the disability rights movement in Canada for 40 years, uh, maybe maybe longer. Um, And that began with uh, fighting the Ontario government um, for my brother's right to go to school with my sister and I. And uh, we actually ended up losing that case in the Ontario Supreme Court of Appeal in the early 80s. I was three, four, five years old as all that was happening. So we moved and then so that my brother could go to school with my sister and I. And that began a kind of long struggle for um, inclusive education because it's one thing to be at school and it's another thing to to um, be included but that was very much my mentality I was the youngest my brother was the oldest and um, you know I really looked up to him and couldn't imagine why he wouldn't be able to have the rights that I had and um, I'm glad that that was my orientation early on Mm -hmm. um, because certainly the culture in the 80s and 90s was not that wasn't the message that was sent to most people and the other piece of that was that when we moved um so that he could go to school with my sister and I, we moved to this town, a city called Aurelia, which had a big institution. Um, and actually my uncle had, had died in that institution when he was very young. Um, my uncle had Down syndrome and, and was, um, you know, the, when he was born, the doctors said, you're not gonna be able to take him home. He's gonna go to the institution. And it was this big Gothic um, building um, on, the, on the lake and kind of on a hill uh, in this city that I ended up growing up in. And it really structured my life as well in a way. And obviously much more for my brother um, because he was with us and, and with the family and and in school in a city that didn't see that as possible, right? In a city where that biggest employer was the institution mm-hmm. where hundreds of people were being abused. Um, you know, that there was a, a class action lawsuit just about four or five years ago, finally um, from survivors of the institution. And it was a terrible place. Um, so that's the early background, right, is thinking about schools as places that needed to be changed, right, from the very beginning of my education. And also thinking about the ways that, that, um, that we structure exclusionary spaces, right, um, and that they become kind of monolithic uh, and, and become a kind of philosophical base for the kinds of exclusions that happen every day. So, you know, the existence of that big Gothic building on the hill meant that when my brother and I were out in town, you know, he he was treated like he'd broken out somehow, you know? Uh, And then, so through my own education, that was my orientation. When I got to university and began to have the ability to study what I wanted to study, I was very lucky because that's when disability studies was starting. Mm -hmm. And I was looking around and saying, this doesn't look like the community and the culture that I'm used to, because it was so exclusionary and it was so uh, individualistic as well and and um, competitive, and that didn't that didn't make sense to me based on my background. And I knew that the harm the harm that could come from that, from creating an elite space, there's just as much harm as there is created when you create a non-elite space. You know, so a university on a hill. Um, that, that sees itself as separate from the community that sees itself as a place for only a few people. There's damage that's caused by that too. And the the interesting thing is the institution and the, and universities look the same, they're same architects, Mm -hmm. right? The same, same design, um, the same use of particular kinds of motifs like stairs. Um, But, but one was a place for for the elite uh, and the other place had bars on the windows. I think uh, I was lucky in that I found disability studies, I found a way to engage. I I started teaching um, in my early 20s and really loved teaching and realized that teaching was the place where I could change a classroom, even if it was just my own, Mm -hmm. um, to be more inclusive. Uh, And that sort of got me going on this this path.
0: Yeah, that sounds really interesting, that background. But I was wondering, you talk about the institutions and the architecture of universities and how they look really similar, which makes me think about Mm -hmm. maybe the opposite, the ways that your family might have responded to the ways that these spaces looked and how you, in the private sphere, then created a space that looks the opposite to make your sibling feel like included.
1: Hmm. It's interesting. I mean, so my brother was, he kind of, he had a syndrome called rubenstein Taby syndrome, and it's pretty rare. Mm-hmm. Uh, he didn't know what it was um, for, for many years and doctors were just getting diagnoses wrong over and over again. The one place that we spent a lot of time was in, in hospitals, mm-hmm. right? In doctor's offices, in hospitals, doing testing, spending time with him. And, and he hated those spaces and they were terrible. And they structured interactions with him that were really dehumanizing. Mm-hmm. So when, when I looked at higher education, I saw a lot of those similar processes especially for disabled people. Within an institution of higher education, it becomes a hospital in a way for a disabled person mm-hmm. because they need to wear their diagnosis and they need to structure interactions first around a diagnosis with a lot of people over and over again. Mm-hmm. And in other ways, I saw them as like like uh, legalistic spaces, right? Where, where you're, you know, somebody is going to be making it difficult for, for you to get the things you have the right to. Mm-hmm. So they become kind of bureaucratic spaces like that, which I was familiar with from the legal um, struggles that our family was part of. Mm -hmm. I mean, but my brother lost mobility through his life. So he was on crutches when I was younger. Then he was in in a manual wheelchair. He he had electric wheelchairs, a variety of different kinds. Mm -hmm. Um, And definitely that oriented my feeling around space. I mean, I noticed stairs as a problem everywhere I saw them. Mm -hmm. And most people don't, right? Mm -hmm. I, I knew because i would travel with my brother. He had a lift to get him in and out of a van. Mm -hmm. Um, I I just noticed when spaces weren't accessible. Mm -hmm. Um, Our house always had to be accessible. When I looked at a place, I knew whether it was gonna be visitable, like how it would work for him to visit there. Would he have to be, get out of his chair and be lifted, right, and the risk of that and the lack of dignity of having to be lifted into somebody's house instead of being able to come in the front door. But all those things also became metaphorical for me. So they were about the space very much, tangibly, but I could also begin to see how those things worked, regardless of the space. What's the interaction that makes you feel like you're being, that you're reliant on somebody else, you know, to that degree. Whether there's space, whether there's a ramp that you have to come around the back of the building through the kitchen or whatever, there are also ways that 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 happens metaphorically. Right? Yeah.
0: Were um, there any spaces or conditions of spaces that were particularly comfortable or inclusive, or did you find yourself having to adapt or having to accommodate in most built spaces?
1: Yeah. It's interesting because my brother moved to Toronto, my family moved to Toronto when my brother was around 24, mm-hmm. 25. And so we'd lived out in the country in a small town. And it was very inaccessible. I mean, he was completely reliant on us to get around. When Mm -hmm. he moved to Toronto and my sister and I had pushed for so long for them to do this. When he moved to Toronto, they lived right across from an accessible subway stop uh, with an elevator. He could get around Toronto faster than anybody Mm
0: -hmm.
1: on the subway and with his electric wheelchair. Um, But the other thing was he wasn't the only different person. Mm -hmm. He really liked being on the subway not just because he liked trains and he liked, you know, being able to get where he wanted to go, mm-hmm. but because you get on the subway in Toronto and it's a very diverse mix of people and he didn't feel like any people were staring at him. Mm-hmm. You know, that was very, very much the experience. And uh, really, I really, I know I mentioned that earlier, but being looked at as though you're not supposed to be in public mm-hmm. is, a, is a, that's an experience for, for disabled people in smaller places. Mm -hmm. And in a place like Toronto, you still get stared at. There's still microaggressions. There's still all kinds of things that you experience that are negative, but on the whole, you can look around and think, okay, I'm not, I feel at home here. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and he, he very much felt at home and made friends with people who didn't care Mm -hmm. if anyone was staring at them, Mm -hmm. you know, um, so yeah in that way i think he built community and it wasn't necessarily about space right Mm -hmm. people who would be willing to help him navigate an accessible space right but also sometimes people who had to navigate that themselves and so they knew they already were oriented to looking at things the ways that he did and Mm -hmm. and being in toronto he had access to just more people right Mm -hmm. who were more open-minded who were different and that was a big deal in his life and And that changed his life very much. Mm
0: -hmm. And going back to your role as an educator, what are some ways that you as a professor are able to implement these ways of teaching or thinking in ways that weren't readily available in the past when, you know, access and disability was kind of on the rise and that kind of knowledge was still being produced?
1: Yeah, that's really interesting. I think disability studies early on was, was more it was more of a framework for, uh, I don't know, analysis. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, you could, you could look at a text or a film or an archive and you could see the ways disability had been excluded. And there's a lot of work to do to sort of say, no, probably if we dig deeper, we'll find that disability was central here. And that was a lot of, that's been a lot of my work. Mm-hmm. But in the classroom, it was always more relational. Mm-hmm. Right. And it was more about being able to construct an environment that questioned a lot of the norms of higher education, mm-hmm. that questioned assessment and testing and competition, and that was looking to experiment with different ways to structure the little windows of time <laughs> that we had with one another um, to learn, but also to kind of create community. And that's, I th- think, where disability studies has really come over the last five or six years Mm -hmm. through things like disability justice. And, you know, it's acknowledged that the real work that we have to do is building community. Right. Mm -hmm. And that models that disabled people have around that relationship building, community building, reciprocity, you know, responsibility, interdependence, those things are very different than what most of the time happens in a university classroom. They're the opposite of it in a lot of ways. So it becomes a really productive way to challenge the ways we've always done things in the, in a classroom. And I really love that. Right. Um, I had a a great experience for, for several years. I, I was an administrator in a way um, working with new teachers and I got to go into like 200 classrooms a year and just watch people teach. (laughs) And it was amazing. Right. Mm -hmm. I learned so much from that, especially from new teachers who hadn't, been stuck in the system for a long time you know I learned so much about the variety of ways that people learn and that there's not one way and that's continued to be the kind of thing that I seek out is is learning from other people about how they learn to broaden that sense of of how learning happens
0: yeah I mean I think that I echo those those ideas of the way that new teachers teach versus kind of the old systems that are supported by those that have been teaching for a long time. Mm-hmm. Working in the diversity equity and inclusion committee at the Syracuse School of Architecture, these are experiences that we've had, especially with the recent years of trying to promote change through simple things like diversity in literature or the ways that we teach core courses, um, asking for change. It's a lot easier to ask for change when people haven't been you know, teaching for as long. Um, yeah. But yeah, and yeah. to talk about um, this idea of the metaphor, one of the pieces that I read of yours was the steep steps to retrofit to universal mm-hmm. design from collapse to austerity. I really enjoyed it. Um, and you talk about the steep steps, the retrofit and the universal design and these metaphors. And then you talk about this metaphor of the collapse. And I was wondering if you could expand more on this metaphor and how you envision that materializing, maybe through your teaching or maybe through um, space and also other ideas.
1: Sure. Um, I mean, I think, I think it's like a partially formed idea. Mm-hmm. I, I think about like, um, what's the future for higher education mm-hmm. uh, when, when it's so oriented around expansion and growth? Um, you know, we're seeing a real crisis in, in Ontario right now. Uh, because the, the government funding for education has gone down drastically, or have been frozen, and universities left to the, their own devices begin to compete with one another for more and more students. And to do that, they take big risks. And it's late capitalism, right? I mean, the biggest part of the orientation is around this idea that we have an unsustainable system. Mm-hmm. And we, I believe that that translates to higher education as well. Um, and, and we have a system that very much like to get to the point you just made before the people with the most power, are the people most resistant to changing the system because the, that very conservative, narrow version of what, how learning and, and how, how learning happens and how we communicate knowledge, that's exactly the way that those people were taught to do it. Mm-hmm. Right. So to change the system means acknowledging that they got their privilege in something not, wasn't really a meritocracy. You know, they were basically born into those positions of privilege, the ways that they learn aren't, they're not going to be reflected in a more diverse group of students, right? And so if we do things the way that, that the people in power have done them for the last 30 years, the only thing that's certain is that the university is going to look very much like those old white people, Mm -hmm. (laughs) and it's going to be a machine for making education difficult for the wide range of diverse people who don't look like that, Mm -hmm. Right. And you know that's quite possible. That's, that's how universities are functioning right now. I think COVID has really revealed that, the ways that we've really shown that we don't care to prioritize a diverse range of ways of learning through COVID. Mm-hmm. Just put it online and, and get some test proctoring, surveil students more so that you can keep doing the exact same things you were doing before. Right. Mm-hmm. It's a retrofit. You, you make a slight change, but the It's in the spirit of making sure you don't have to make a big change. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And in the end, that's not going to work. I mean, you can only extract value from that broken system for so long, and then it is going to break down. And to me, though, collapse, like that idea of collapse is a generative. There's an idea in there that's generative, and it kind of comes from disability, right? Like, you know, the ramps that my brother brought with him everywhere to be able to make a space accessible. They were collapsible ramps. (laughs) You know, in in disability, people know that idea of, you know, uh, whether it's a cane or a ramp or a wheelchair, right? They collapse (laughs) so that you can put them back together again somewhere else and find a use for them that sometimes is kind of uh, um, novel, right? I mean, you still have to carry it around with you everywhere. You still have to apply it to the to the inaccessible space. But there's something generative from that metaphor of collapse that mm-hmm. I think is useful. So, just trying to kind of use that metaphor in that piece to, to think about what the future is, because we don't have a sustainable future for higher education. We don't really have a sustainable future for our economy or our environment. And I, I believe there are things to learn from disabled people about adaptation, about creating different forms of, of communities and dist- different systems that everybody would benefit from paying attention to. And I think that's especially the case in, in higher education. And I'm seeing that change, right? Mm-hmm. That disabled people, people doing disability justice work, disability advocacy, they are they can be the leaders, right? In developing, building something different.
0: I like that metaphor of the collapse is generative and it's like we can look at it as literal and metaphorical. Again, yeah. just like all these other metaphors that you've referenced, I agree with the also the collapse, I guess, of these institutional systems that have benefited the people that have been around and in order for them to collapse and be regenerated or ref- reframed, you have to then acknowledge the ways in which people have been privileged by the system that exists and it's really hard for people to give that up when they're so comfortable in, in their positioning right now and you know and in order to um allow others in we have to kind of reassess yeah and yeah and that the idea of retrofit as logic of late capitalism these quick temporary fixes I completely agree and I was wondering kind of along those lines How can we prioritize short and long-term initiatives to reframe this narrative? Because retrofit is oftentimes, you know, you said a short-term fix, but at the same time, we still require those immediate changes that might need to hold the place of those long-term fixes while they're still mobilizing.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think I think it's that juggling, right? It's that it's navigating, because you need you need those retrofits right and whether that's in the classroom whether that's an accommodation model in the classroom you know we know the accommodation model allows instructors to not change Mm -hmm. it allows them to keep doing the things that they're doing even when they're harmful Mm -hmm. but you can't say to the individual you know take a stand (laughs) Mm -hmm. right you have to say here's here's the way to to adapt and and work through that system right Mm -hmm. but so to me a big piece of it is recognizing and labeling and showing people what the harm is of that constant retrofit model, especially when in late capitalism, a lot of that harm is very effectively hidden. That the message a university sends about itself is that it's a place for entrepreneurship and innovation that's fast moving, quickly adapting, changing for a changing world. You know, if you look at the marketing from any university, and yet they're extremely conservative spaces in, in terms of the basics of how of how, it, of how we teach, right? And how people learn and how people are measured. We're, we're stuck in the 1920s. And so then just trying to point out the hypocrisy of it, right? Point out the, those costs. How many students, how many disabled students do we lose every year in higher education because of that accommodation model that marks them out to be worn out, right? By constantly having to re ask for that accommodation over and over just like my brother constantly having to carry his ramp with him everywhere he went right at a certain point there's a cost there it's interesting to me as well the other thing that that happens and i'm sure you see this in architecture some things are kind of like built into and and i have this experience like at my own university i complained very much and use this physical metaphor of this set of brutalist stairs outside the building that I work in. They're ornamental. I mean, brutalism has these big, you know, concrete staircases everywhere. I write about it a little bit in the article, but so they were rebuilding this space to create a student-centered space and using staircases again, like taking the concrete ones out and doing these kind of like floating staircase again. And I got to be on the planning committee and say, well, just put in an elevator and actually make it an elegant elevator you can have an elevator that is central to the aesthetic and the message, right? A glass elevator that's in the middle of the space that you know um, becomes something everybody uses that, that is part of the statement. But it was really interesting because the architecture firm that does all of the retrofitting, so none of the new builds, but they do everything that's to do with an old building. And they just have this, they get every contract. <laughs> and it's this old white dudes, right? And they're in the meeting with the Dean And this renovation of this building is going to cost a lot of money, like $60 million or something. Mm -hmm. And the elevator is going to cost a million. So the 60 and maybe not even, I think they inflated the cost too, but um, they're not, they're not talking about the other 59 million as a cost. It's all an investment, right? mm -hmm. It's only the accessibility piece that gets constructed as a cost. And similarly, I see that with, with students in higher education. Every single dollar we spend on higher education is an investment for carpets, for air conditioning, for chairs, right? A chair in a, in a lecture hall in your, in your building costs $180, what looks like a $10 chair, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we just pay it. It's an investment. But the things that we do for disabled students get constructed as a cost and they get constructed as a burden and it's extra. It's not part of the plan. They're unexpected. Even though they're there all the time, every single student with a disability is a surprise, mm-hmm. right, that has to be treated specially. And how many times can you treat somebody as a surprise <laughs> before it's ridiculous to do that, before it's hypocritical to not be planning for them? But that's the that's that accommodation um, Model. And it's so important that we reveal what its costs are. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a weird metaphor. And I'm not advocating for this kind of disability simulation. But if you look at a building and you said for a week, everybody can only use the accessible entrances, they're not allowed to use any space that's inaccessible. So, like, you can't use any stairs, Mm
0: -hmm. you
1: have to use ramps, you have to use elevators. People would stop visiting that building. That's what happens. Mm -hmm. People vote with their feet and they just don't don't go there anymore. Right. But that's a powerful thing for architects to understand. Mm -hmm. Right. When you do that, when you build a space that way, where it's so difficult to have an accessible entrance, then you are basically like intentionally filtering out a wide range of bodies who are making the same choice that you would, which is they will simply avoid that space as much as they possibly can. Mm -hmm. anyway so I mean you know all that stuff but that to me it's like it's not a um, snap your fingers and change thing it's Mm -hmm. it's that through the force of repetition and I learned this from like some of my mentors in higher ed it sounds really arcane and like boring but you know one of my my early mentors she said to me sometimes to be effective you just have to keep saying the same thing over and over again and be the person who's always going to say it Mm -hmm. until people can hear your voice in their head, Mm -hmm. and start saying it themselves. And that sounds like a very boring role. But like, you know, that's work. And it's important work. And as a kind of cis white dude in higher ed, that's work I can do, I can just be the one who says the same thing over and over again. Mm -hmm. Right. So that that to me is, is that's part of what we need to do is just keep revealing what the cost is of this model that tells disabled people that they're not part of things, you know?
0: Yeah, I think that I agree this cost is not that great if you think about it in the big picture and maybe yeah. it does take this repetition and this constant um, advocacy from a place of privilege to make it apparent to people who might not see it. Yeah. I think that that is, I think the role that a lot of people need to begin to play And also you were talking about this brutalist building with the stair and this centralization of the stair. And like a lot of the things that I've noticed in buildings and the the studies that I have had with the National Monument is that spatial sequence. In architecture, we talk a lot about sequence and a lot about design and how we want the user to experience the space. Mm -hmm. These people who have to use these compliance ADA um, ramps and elevators, they don't get to experience the building the way that they're intended to be experienced and therefore Mm -hmm. they're not Preference. Um, they're not like good places to be, um, yeah. and so yeah. This yeah, that that. that yeah. No, but, I love that. Yeah.
1: Most most people don't think that way, right? Like mm-hmm. they they don't think about anything that they're the places that they work, the things that they build themselves, like a syllabus, right? Mm-hmm. Like a curriculum. Mm-hmm. How is it actually experienced? We don't user test those things, you know. And to be honest, and this is a, something that Tanya Tchaikovsky has written, but like, we only know the, the kind of edges of the the spaces we build, educational spaces. I mean that in a metaphorical sense, community, whatever, you know, we only know the edges of it by the, the toll that registers on disabled people's bodies. You know, like mm-hmm. you you recognize the edges of what you've built only when you see the people who are excluded by it, mm-hmm. you know? And the other thing that Tania Chiskovsky writes is about, you know, we think that universities are built. You know, they are built environments, but they're constantly building environments. Mm-hmm. They're not finished. <laughs> <laughs> you know? And I find that really positive. That's a, a way to think about things and changing the things that are easiest to change first, but not acting like anything isn't subject to change. Mm-hmm. It all is, it's all up for grabs, you know? It's interesting because I do I do travel, um, not travel anymore, but like, I do give talks at other universities. And, mm-hmm. and when I visit a campus, even if it's a virtual kind of visit, I try to give examples of really inaccessible design and retrofitting. And I try to find examples of good design. And the interesting thing to me on most university campuses is good design is starts with landscape.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: and it's not hard yeah to do you know Syracuse campus is very rolling right it's hilly
0: mm-hmm. it is it's a it's a castle on a hill yeah uh, but, <laughs> but,
1: but when you have that kind of design
0: mm-hmm. and
1: you're smart about creating inclines that are the right kind of grade
0: mm-hmm.
1: you have a building with four level entrances mm-hmm. You know what I mean? There's no need for stairs at at all except for as decoration Mm -hmm. and a lot of the universally designed buildings on college and university campuses are built around pathways and landscaping Mm -hmm. (laughs) which is funny because that's like the cheapest stuff to do.
0: Yeah. But
1: it's often the most powerful stuff and I, I do remember when I was at Syracuse saying to people like you've got a reputation around disability, and you have a very inaccessible campus. Mm -hmm. And people sort of held up, and they're like, well, we're building this veteran space. And I don't know what the progress is on it right now, but Mm -hmm. I know it was designed with universal design principles. Mm -hmm. And part of what I had to say was this is what universities do. They have one space that's really, really accessible. And they hold that up, and they want to get a cookie, right? Mm -hmm. Mm But that one space, especially at Syracuse, which they're hoping will attract a lot of veterans to come to campus, Mm -hmm. when those veterans try to take classes elsewhere or attend events elsewhere, Mm -hmm. it's not going to be accessible. So Mm -hmm. you've actually kind of tricked people. It's like universal design and catfishes people (laughs) into thinking that, that there's going to be accessible spaces everywhere and that's not the case. And if you really want those people to come and feel welcome, it can't just be about this one public-facing space. It's mm-hmm. gotta be about everything.
0: Mm-hmm. I actually res- got the opportunity to talk to Professor Tuchowski last week.
1: Oh, cool, we were talking- okay, we were she's awesome. Talking-
0: we were talking about um, like this idea of transformation and noticing and this idea of seeing. And I think that that completely relates to this conversation as well, is we built this universal design building, which is, um, I can tell you now it's constructed and it's a built space. but no one really knows how to use it. And we still go back to these emblematic spaces that are on like the family walk where the classical spaces are still really incredibly representative of the university and still will be, are still incredibly inaccessible. And Mm -hmm. maybe it is also the ideas that we need to change in how we use these spaces. Like why can't these bodies exist in a way that we don't usually see in these spaces? And I think that's what we were talking about in that conversation, but Um, yeah, so like kind of pivoting from this, and I know that our time is kind of almost running out, what communities, groups, and networks do you belong to with support and how do they overlap with the work that you do?
1: Hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting. A lot of the kind of uh, collectives and groups that had been built, things like People First, which is, you know, folks with intellectual disabilities led organization, Mm -hmm. they've fallen on really hard times and some of the leadership you know, people have been 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 sick and, and we've lost people, a lot of people that kind of wave of leadership that would have been my brother, my brother passed away when he was 29, he would have been a leader, you know, um, and there's a lot of people in that boat in Ontario and, and in in the region where I live, and there is a kind of change underway around disability, especially folks with intellectual disability and building new structures. One of the pieces has been connecting survivors of institutionalization. So I work very closely and I'm very close with a lot of survivors. You know, the folks, you know, my my uncle passed away and I never got to meet him, you know, but I'm still very connected with survivors and I'm a part of a, a big project where we're writing a book, two books actually. Um, working with survivors to help them write their own stories around institutionalization and around what happens after an institution closes down, what other supports are needed and, and what are people's lives look like. So that's one piece. I think in Ontario, though, that there's also a lot of younger people, right, a, a generation of folks, and it's more around mad pride, ma- around um, psychiatric diagnoses and and um, advocacy around um the hypocrisy around mental health and wellness. I work with a lot of people, including myself, who, who understand those systems and are sort of pushing back against stigmatization of psychiatric diagnoses. And that's often student-led. Uh, but also student groups have been decimated. There's no funding for student groups, even clubs. And so there used to be a lot of advocacy from students and those groups have been been eroded you know, over time. So I think that the kind of ethic of community care and those sorts of things, there's a lot of that going on, but it's not formally organized the ways that it used to be. And there's a lot of potential for for further organization. And that's the one terrific thing is that we do have things like disability studies, right? Mm -hmm. So there are faculty with disabilities. There are students with disabilities on campus and they, they understand their role as not just as a student, but as an advocate. And so trying to get out of the way and support those folks to do the work that they do, Mm
0: -hmm. trying
1: to share resources as somebody who has a lot of privilege and resources and has things like research money, Mm -hmm. you know, finding Mm -hmm. ways to get that to other people so that they can do their work in a system that's not going to support that work unless we do it, unless we find ways to do that ourselves. And innovative, unique ways to do that ourselves that go outside of the standard, you know, research (laughs) funding structure. Yeah, I guess that's what I would say. In Toronto, there's a lot more going on in terms of disability arts and culture. And, you know, when I used to be able to travel then, you know, there there was a lot more of that happening in a place like Toronto than there is in a place like Waterloo. But that doesn't mean it's not happening here. And I think also just kind of through COVID, building networks of care. Who needs groceries? <laughs> you know, who needs help with childcare? What do people need? And those informal networks of care that are facilitated by things like social media that there never was before, right? Mm-hmm. I don't know if that answers the question, but I think, and those to me are models. Those can be architectural models. How do you build a space, right, for mm-hmm. advocacy? How do you build a space for that's, that's centered around care rather mm-hmm. than evaluation or assessment? And universities are going to have to figure that out because they've been machines for something very different.
0: Yeah, that was incredibly insightful. I definitely need to take into consideration a lot of those ideas. And as a concluding question, um, I was wondering what you're looking forward to um, in the future of your field and in the future of this field of study.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, I'm looking forward to a lot. It's very interesting to me to see um, to see the work that people are doing and to see that it's not siloed, right? Like the future of disability studies is not gonna be just disability studies. Mm-hmm. It's gonna be the ways that, that, um, that disability figures and factors into all of these other movements. That to me is really great. I had a very different moment. You know, when I came to disability studies, I was like, oh, there's this, there's this part of things that I could be within. Right? But it was a very soloed kind of thing. It's like, oh, there's a section in the library that has these books. <laughs> there's these classes. There's a program here. There's a person there. And it was very much attached to building disability studies as its own thing that I don't think is that valuable anymore. Building disability studies as something that's responsive to a lot of other things is really exciting. That's responsive to anti-racism. That's responsive to a kind of anti-colonialism that understands residential schools and institutions as mutually co-constructive spaces. That's not writing a history of disability in Canada because that history never didn't overlap with a variety of other histories. That's exciting. And and seeing that work that is truly crossing over and in conversation with other groups, right. With other um, ways of of studying things with other ways of communicating, making arguments. I think that's another piece is like being more accessible and responsive and helping other disciplines do that too because disability studies does it really well sometimes. You know, making sure that our work is community facing, that we're not writing things that are only for an academic audience. Helping the community write their own stuff and getting out of the way. That's the most exciting part for me. You know, I edit a journal. I have this project where I'm working with survivors for them to tell their stories. And to be honest, I'm most excited about not writing myself. I'm excited about creating opportunities for other people to get their message out and to take over, right? It's time for some people to step aside and let other people in. And and if you can use your labor and privilege to make that space for other people, that becomes the responsibility. Uh, is a personal opinion, but that was not the generation above us, right? The people I had above me, they didn't want to get out of the way. They wanted to keep a lot of the spaces for themselves. And I think that was harmful. And so, you know, a lot of what you learn in academia, you don't learn how to do things. You learn what not to do by looking at how within an ableist system, within an oppressive system, people behave. You learn, I think, you should be learning things you don't want to do. Mm -hmm. And I think for the group of of folks who I have been in conversation with over the last 20 years, that's our our orientation is to get out of the way more than the people who mentored us got out of the way.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's great. Well, thank you so much for all your thoughts and ideas and for speaking with me. I really- Yeah, well, I'm,
1: I'm excited to hear where all this goes and hopefully that was a little bit helpful to you. And it was fun for me to get to talk about it, and I'm, I'm excited to see where the project
0: goes. That was incredibly helpful for me. Thank you for listening to an episode of the Constructing Differences podcast. To find out more about this project, visit representationsofdifference.com or at representationsofdifference on Instagram. Special thanks to Jan Deirdrich for helping me through the IRB approval process, Dr. Olwan for provoking my thoughts on solidarity, and Professor Lori Brown for being my mentor on this project and so many others. Finally, thank you to all the participants who agreed to speak with me on Zoom throughout the month of April. Your time, words, and thoughts were greatly appreciated.